Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Each episode, I'm talking to performers from film, television and theatre about one significant role in their career. It might not always be the role they're most famous for, but in each one, I'll be trying to find out about the preparation, the excitement and the sense of nostalgia that goes with any key role in an actor's lifetime. Liz Carr had completed a law degree, performed as a comedian and campaigned internationally for disability rights before she took on her first professional acting job in her 30s. I was delighted that she agreed to talk to me during lockdown about her role as the forensic expert, Clarissa Mullery, in BBC TV's Silent Witness. Uh, But before we start about that, I I really needed to talk to you, because before you were a uh, comedian, and that's right. Yes. And you are, you are a comedian. Well, uh, but not not anymore. I don't get I don't get carted upstairs to those uh, to those pub back rooms or you know those first floor rooms and set on kind of two beer crates, which is essentially what my comedy career was was like. My stand up career, always lots of jokes about that because I'm a wheelchair user. I didn't make them. Be everyone else going? How can you be a stand up comedian? <laughs> Oh, as if that was the funniest gag in the world. Um, so I, I, obviously the bar was very low. And um, so I started in comedy and uh, and it was a long time really before that then went to me becoming what I guess was a proper telly actor. How long was it? How long was that time of you uh, on the circuit? So I started, so I started doing sketch comedy the beginning of the 2000s, uh, 2001, I was part of something called Nasty Girls. And that was very much a very core kind of disability uh, and deaf world uh, thing that we did. We, but we would do like Edinburgh Fringe and London Comedy Festival and stuff. But otherwise, we'd do the conferences, the conference circuit and, and sort of disability organisations. We were very political. We were only disabled women. It was amazing. And then I... Um, there was a course run by Grey Eye Theatre Company, who were kind of the most famous in the UK theatre company for disabled people. And they were running with London Met. And I lived in Nottingham at the time, so this was going to involve moving down to London. They did a six-month performance art course for disabled people. And I had gone to mainstream school as a disabled person. And 
they had, you know, drama was not accessible at all. So, like, the only role that they ever thought I could play was, like, a queen because I'd have my own throne. I mean, it was that, it was really that bad. And I'd gone to night classes. I lived in Nottingham. I worked at a law centre as a volunteer. You know, I did, I did that kind of thing, advice work. And, um, and I went to night school to do drama as well. And nobody would ever pair up with me which I really like now because I think, I wonder how many of them are on the telly. Uh, but, but, <laughs> but it was that horrible thing that lots of people, I think, can probably identify with when that horror of being picked in pairs or being picked at school and they don't pick you. And that, that would happen. So night class was a bad experience. But come forward to this drama course with Grey Eye Theatre at 2003 and it was amazing. I mean, and we touched on lots of little things, um, you know, including dance, including solo performance, uh, you know, acting practices as well. The end of that was a sort of semi-professional tour of Mother Courage. And I remember as Nasty Girls, we were like, we were doing Edinburgh Fringe that year. And the tour was going to be June, July. Edinburgh Fringe was, was August. And I was like, don't worry, don't worry. I don't want to be, who wants to be in Mother Courage? Bah, you know, it's just three hours of Brecht. Who cares? And all of that. And and then I got cast as Mother Courage. So that was the beginning of the ego going, well, I've got to do that. I mean, I'm on stage for three hours. <laughs> all of a sudden it became a... It's all about me. Yeah, it became attractive. <laughs> so... So, uh, Nasty Girls didn't live much belong 2004, but we did do Edinburgh Fringe that year and did do um, Mother Courage. And, like, we did the studio at the Young Vic. I mean, that was that that was your, the meaningful one. That was the one that had a bit of kudos, you know. Um, but just to be on a tour. And it was, I think there were, my goodness, something like 15 disabled people on stage in this multimedia, incredible performance by Jan Willem Vandenbosch was the director. And I don't think he knew what had hit him, you know, but thank you. He was a real visionary. So he did, you know, so there were people that couldn't always be there because their conditions meant that they'd be tired or some days their conditions, their impairments would fluctuate. So he'd make sure that their parts were on video. So quite a lot was on video. There was a big screen as part of it. You know, and we had sign language interpreters integrated into the performance. It was phenomenal. You know, if you've not seen kind of accessible or inclusive theatre, it, it's, it's yeah, it's really arresting and it's so creative. So that was the beginning. And then, Jan... Okay, so can, I, can I just take you back just a second? Because when I was growing up and I was watching telly, I saw people like me on telly and I thought, I want to be an actor. But where was it? Where was that thought born for you? Where you thought, "I want to be a performer. I want to act." Where were you? Were you seeing that at all, or was it just in your own imagination? See, I don't know because I had a very academic education, very academic. Uh, so it was all about, and I loved history, but it was, you know, my school was that academic. It was like, don't do history. What, what, who can do anything with history? It's useless unless you do Oxbridge. I mean, that was, you know, it was at that level. Um, and so, and I did law at university. So, but then decided to break the law and I became quite a, an activist. So I would chain myself to buses and do all that in the campaigns that disabled people had for accessible public transport, you know. And um, so along the way, that was my, that was the 90s. 
I don't really know where it came from, but, you know, um, from the Wirral, uh, so we're nearish to Liverpool, uh, there is a lot of comedy. There was a lot of comedy in my family. And I think, you know, if you're... if In a mainstream school, I was the only disabled person or the only overt, uh, obvious disabled person. So you do need some sort of chutzpah to survive that uh, and some confidence. And I think that comedy always helps you through with that so it really began as comedy was the route in um and then I don't like I don't like when someone says I can't do something and I, I don't mean kind of oh you can't walk I, I don't it doesn't really bother me but if they say sorry you're not allowed in here it's not accessible or the likes of you shouldn't be doing this or then I kind of get a bit fronted at that and think that that's absolute bullshit um so I think that school and not thought that I could do it um I went on a course again another disability course and at the beginning of each day we did yoga and that that might sound like really out there in terms of how does that relate but I remember thinking I could never do yoga as a disabled person but if you do yoga you'll know it's all about the breath so essentially you don't really need to move very much it's its truest form and on that same course, it was about different kind of arts practices and learning to teach them to workshops. And so there was one day that was about uh, drama and we did some drama games. In fact, it was Shirley Houston who plays Izzy, the wheelchair-using character on, on um, Coronation Street. She was running the workshop and it was like, oh God, I can do, I can do drama I didn't know I could do drama. I'd always thought it wasn't accessible to me. How would they fit me in? So I didn't have the confidence. When I was doing night school drama in the 90s or tried that, I didn't have the confidence or the knowledge or skills to go, actually, this is accessible if we do that. But once I was shown how to make drama games accessible and how to play and how it's about the imagination and being different people and all those fun things, it was like, oh, I can do this. I like this. So I think it was that. I think it was Shirley. I think it was on that cause that wasn't really about drama. And I think that's absolutely where it began. But comedy was the way in to that. Right, okay. Because I remember for me, it was that thing of suddenly finding like my tribe. When I when I went to my, I went to a few drama groups. And when I went to the Everyman, which was the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool, when I went to that, place and I walked into that room with those people I suddenly went a I liked it but b I felt it felt comfortable and I if I felt for one you know for a bit romantic but I felt at home uh and that idea of being collectively creative is it's so wonderful that isn't it it's a great feeling to suddenly go Oh, I'm with these people who are doing this. I guess people have it when they're doing sport or whatever. You know, I'm sure accountants have it when they get together. No, I don't think they do. They they don't. They can't. Uh, I'm sorry, accountants, but I'm sure you don't. I don't know. Uh, But there was something completely about making work and coming together. In You know, if you're doing something that's really well known or been done to death, when it's presented with a whole group of new people, it's, it's like new again, you know, and... 
um, and to come up with the whole process. I mean, sometimes I think the joy because I do I do love theatre. I love applause. You see, I'm a I'm an applause whore, so uh, I do like that. And in filming, one of my favourite things is that you know when you when you you know when you wrap. So when you finish, your character is finished for that particular episode or whatever. And, um, you know, and if you've got a good first AD, assistant director, they will say, right, OK, well, that was Liz's last scene in Silent Witness, episode three. Uh, if we could all give her an applause. And I'm like, I lived for that <laughs> once I got on telly because I missed it from stand up and I missed it from theatre. And, and it's there's something about a live audience and that connection and that sense that the same material can be different every single night and you can still find stuff for you as an actor or a comedian a performer that just oh yeah I I think I think what I love now and what I see is linked to the law or the workshops I used to run, or all of the things that I've done, it's about communicating with people. Because I think ultimately that's what you're doing as an actor, uh, is you're communicating a story, a mood, an emotion with an audience. And to, to get them to connect to that is like, wow, it's the best. But when, when, you, when you were doing your comedy... Was, and you said it was sketch comedy. Was it character-based sketch comedy you were doing? So to start with, it was sketch-based. And then I, be, I, I did stand-up as part of a group called Abnormally Funny People. So the sketch comedy, yes, was lots of ridiculous characters. Um, uh, I, I was a bingo caller in a headscarf and a fag, that kind of archetype, uh, working-class woman. Uh, and, and a lot of fun, very Coronation Street um, there was a woman, a disabled woman, who wore, used to wear a riding hat uh, and have a crop. And, you know, I think the first sketch that you'd see of her was it, you'd start the sketch on camera, on, on film, and it would look like she was riding on a horse, like it was riding for the disabled. But she wasn't. She was just in a wheelchair because nobody had ever... She always just wanted to ride a horse, but nobody had put her on a horse. So she just sat in a chair in a riding hat, bobbing up and down. And, I mean, she was a funny character, but she was deeply tragic, you know. that. So that was the kind of stuff that we do. That certainly the aim of it, as ever really, was if you were disabled you would get something from it incredibly because it would, you know, really resonate. If you weren't, you could still find it funny. That was what we were aiming for. And you're writing this as well. Are you writing it as a group or was there one writer? We were we were writing it together. I mean, Anne Cunningham was, was incredible as a writer. Didn't, I've never, I'm not a bad writer actually, but I don't, I'm not confident as a writer and I'm not disciplined as a writer. But I have, you know, I've written a one-woman show, I've written a musical, so I have, and they've done okay. So I, I, I do write and I do enjoy it, I think. Uh, but yes, I'm, I'm very good with deadlines, like artists often are. So, you know, if the deadline's nine o'clock for something, then I'll be up through the night until nine o'clock. Uh, but yeah, but we would, we would sort of throw ideas around and come up with it that way and then put something down and adapt it. And with Mother Courage, that was a big sort of, you know, it was a breakthrough, wasn't it? It was suddenly that people were seeing it. It was a big audience, you know, it was a big deal, wasn't it? I mean, was that a point for you where you thought, oh, 
not that it's my breakthrough, nobody ever feels that, but, you know, that you've gone up a level as far as your visibility is concerned. And, you know, did you have an agent then and with you being looked after from a from that point of view? So Mother Courage did really well and we got nice reviews and, and it was an incredible part uh, to, yeah, it was an incredible part for your first role. And, and I think you do. I think, though, you do think, well, this is it because I want to do... Because you want more. It's not just that you think, you know, it's not about fame or anything. It's about, I'd like to do more of this. But, you know, couldn't get... I mean, I couldn't get an agent until my second year in Silent Witness. Yeah, I couldn't even get one going into a guaranteed BBC One TV show. I mean, it was guaranteed money for an agent. And, and the more that they negotiated, the better I would do or they would do. But no, could not get an agent and certainly couldn't for theatre, certainly couldn't for comedy at all. Um, they, you know, it was the usual, sorry, we don't, you know, we're not looking. We've got drama schools coming out at the moment. The letters that everybody gets, disabled or not, in fact, it's a difficult world. But it definitely has been very tough, Uh Every step has been really, really tough. And so the next thing that I did was, because we'd done Mother Courage in the studio at the Young Vic, well, Jan was picked up, the director of it, was picked up by the Young Vic for their Young Directors programme. And you got to direct um, a show in the main house at the Young Vic. And he picked another Brecht, The Exception and the Rule. And he wanted, he'd, he'd loved working with me, so he asked me to do that. So I ended up on the main stage in The Exception and the Rule. And um, and again, you think, well, this is, this is incredible. I've only done a year. But, you know, in between those two shows, it was comedy, it was the sketch comedy. And after that, it was, I did a Grey Eye show, um, Georges Dondin, uh, Moliere, and then... That was it. It was comedy. I got nothing, nothing else in terms of theatre until Silent Witness came along, which, of course, is TV, not theatre. So, yeah. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, how did you first hear about the fact that they were looking for you or there was an audition? Or if you haven't got an agent, who's contacting you and how does that happen? So... I um, was doing, I had been since the mid, so 2005, 2006, because of my comedy and the disability, like arts world is quite small. So we, we do tend to know each other, or we did, certainly, I knew, you know. And so I was known for what I was doing. Uh, and I did a podcast with uh, a disabled actor called Matt Fraser. And we did this podcast for the BBC called The Ouch Podcast that at this point in the mid-2000s was under the radar of a proper department at the BBC. And so the aim was, because the producer was a blind guy, was that we would talk about disability in the way that real disabled people, i.e. Crips, we would call ourselves, would talk about it, OK? So there was a quiz called that sort of sums up the line of where this was at. There was a quiz that we would do when we did it monthly called Vegetable, Vegetable or Vegetable where you had to guess what was wrong with the person that rang up. And we would ask some absolutely, you know, if you were born now, would you be aborted? Um, if we looked at you, would we recognise you as disabled? I mean, it was, but, but it was a cult. 
So you rang up knowing and wanting to catch us out because we never guessed it right. And you rang because you wanted to be part of that. And and actually, whilst it might sound bizarre, it's it's based on the fact that often as disabled people, as, as uh, outward appearing disabled people, you're often asked very personal questions by strangers. And there's an obsession about wh- what's wrong with you. There is in the news. If you see a news story that actually just has a disabled person in it, it's nothing to do with the fact they're disabled. They always want to put what's wrong with the person, always. Like for women, they always want to put how old we are. So if you're a disabled woman, it's what's wrong with you and how old you are. You know, it's it, it's true. So it was playing on this trope, really. Um, so I did that. I did that for like seven years and also wrote for the BBC Ouch as well. And so I was on people's radars, I guess. Um so it's January 2012. I'm on the train going up to Dundee to do a stand-up comedy gig with Abnormally Funny People. So this is now me doing stand-up, not sketch comedy. And I get an email saying, uh, are you available from April till November this year? And do you live in London? It's for a job that's coming up for a BBC show. Yes, tick, tick. Uh, reply then got the thing back going great would you fancy auditioning for silent witness there's a new character coming in and I read the character profile of Clarissa Mullery and I'm like she made complete sense apart from the fact she's like mid mid 50s and I think I was just becoming yeah I was late 30s at this point I was a bit insulted um but that's it often for disabled characters or when they want to cast us, there aren't that many of us that you that they do age bracket. So they almost let that go in this case. It was kind of, it became whoever fitted the shoe, whoever, whatever Cinderella fitted the shoe would get the job. Um, and the, the audition piece was a real kind of a very confident middle-aged woman kind of, uh, you know, of course you're expecting me. Uh, you know, where, who, where's my office? I'm here. She had no, you know, she had no apology. She completely knew who she was. And the sarcasm and the intelligence really appealed to me. Um, and I think the fact that I was coming to 40, uh, somebody that appears like me. So I'm very aware what I look like. I'm very, very thin. If you, you know, if you're listening and you haven't seen me or, you know, and seen my picture, I'm very thin and slight. Um, and I have been ill. I was ill a lot as a kid. Uh, and my body wears that. So you see that. It's very obvious. Um, I'm not just like any other person sitting down in a wheelchair, basically. And I didn't see me on TV. I never saw me on TV or anyone even remotely like me. Um, so my age, because TV's not known for employing older women and older can be anyone over 35 these days. And you certainly didn't, they didn't really employ disabled people uh, unless it was a documentary about some medical procedure or a charity. So do you know what? I didn't think I was going to get it. I wanted it. So I'm ambitious enough that I'd learned a mate had told me, make sure you know the text inside and out. Know it completely. Don't go in. They, they'd, their sister had lost a major job 
by not learning. But then they were an actor and they had learned it for the first audition, got invited back, didn't learn it because they thought it was theirs and they could play with it and have the, the script in front of them. And they, you know, between two people, I think they lost it because of that. So she said, learn it, learn it, Joe, my wife. She's like, learn it, learn it, learn it. And I did. And, um, but I didn't. How much, how much was there to learn? I mean, are we talking two pages, three pages or what? I think it was two pages. It was about two pages. And on the, on the day, we were late. I mean, I was late for you today doing the podcast. I mean, it doesn't matter whether the meeting is real or virtual. I'm always late, right? So, and it's not rude. I just, you know, we thought we'd, we'd left enough time. So I ring them because I know I'm going to be late. And they're like, we're sorry, you know. So I missed the audition. True. Completely missed the audition. So... I email them afterwards and say, I'm really sorry, rookie mistake. I know it's the first rule, get there on time. I didn't. Uh, Good luck in finding who you want. If by any luck for me, you don't, you know where I am. And then two weeks later, they got in touch. And when I went to the audition at BBC White City, there were already another two disabled women there and I knew them both, which, of course, you just would. And essentially, I think they'd just gone, any disabled woman, mostly wheelchair users, that they were aware of, they approached if they'd done anything in the media. Um, and, and that was it. And so the, the first audition was the producer and the exec and they put me on um tape um is there a cast is there is there a casting director as well is there has there been that relationship there was but and she was lovely and i can't remember her name isn't that awful now because she gave me my break um and was she there i guess she must have been there she had certainly negotiated the emails because she'd been very lovely even with me missing the you know the the first audition um and they put me on tape and I remember just really being quite glad that I got everything out in the right order and in the way I sort of wanted it. And they were like, would you like to do it again? And I was like, no, I'm fine. <laughs> and they were like, no, no, why don't you do it again? Let's have two versions of it, you know. And, and I don't think the casting one was there because there was no direction at this point, really. So it was really to get me on tape. And the story has it from uh, the writer of the episodes, who, the writer who created uh, Clarissa, Tim Prager, and wrote the, my opening episode. He has a disabled son. And he took the tapes home and they looked at mine and they both went, it's her, but bloody good luck in getting her past the BBC. And, yeah, uh, because of how I look, really, but in terms of the tone and the sarcasm, I, you know, I think... And, and I, do you know what? Because the character, the character didn't give a shit. She didn't suffer fools gladly. And she really didn't... Yeah, she had such confidence that I think my not thinking I was going to get it, I think that played into me being better at being her. It was sort of an essential criteria, really. But you must have been nervous or did the fact that you'd missed the first one and you were getting a second go or did that take the nerves away or did you just think, you know, I'm just, what have I got to lose? I think a bit of both. I think, you know, if you know that they they, they were obviously in auditions two weeks before 
and they've still not found someone because they're prepared to get you in for being late. Well, okay, that's not bad. So I think that did help. But I'd also had another two weeks to get off book to have learned the script. Um, and to really, you know, by that point then, it, you know, knowing it, you'll know this, and I've learned this so much along the way, often you, you're in a situation, particularly with TV, that the, the lines are so paper thin, they're so only vaguely in there. And you're like, you're hoping you're not tired, you're not hot, you're not hungry, that somebody doesn't put you off because any interference and you're gone. You know, and and so it's always that thing where you say, was, "Was this chair here in rehearsal?" <laughs> Especially when it's your own, it's not good. And um, <laughs> like, and um, so knowing having that extra time, you know, I really got it even more. So again, that played on my, you know, on my my side. But then it was weeks. It was weeks. And I think, I mean, I've heard scrambles of conversations about this. Um, so I was told, because I kept ringing, I kept like, what's happening? It was two months. And I was told from casting that there was going to be another audition. But this time it was with the director and the writer. And it was going to be more about how I could cope with things. How you how you personally could cope with things? Yeah, um, like the physical stuff. Would I need a helper? <clears throat> what were my access requirements and all of that? You know, and one of the things you know that I think I'm very good at is making difficult conversations easier. And and because people, you know, if you're not disabled, if you don't have a lot to do with disability. People freak out around difference, whether it's race, whether it's queer, whether it, whatever your difference is, um, faith, for God's sake, you know, and disability. People don't know how to talk to you. So one of the, the skills you have to have as a disabled person is making other people feel OK. So, you know, and the, and the casting woman knew that, that, that she said, she's, that's what you need to bring to the next one is making sure that everybody knows that it's fine and they can mess up if they say the wrong words and it's all okay. Because that's it, you know, and you'll know this, that when, when you're being cast, you're being cast as the right person for the role, but that's massive because they also want someone that they can work with and someone they can talk to, and someone who will fit in with the team. You know, there's all those other things, like with any job, that you're not just being picked up on whether you've got the right qualifications. You're being picked up as to, God, will she be easy to get on with? Is she, do, do we, can we envisage her? Can we, you know, work with her? Is she the best of a bad bunch? I mean, whatever it is. But I think, you know, decisions are made in casting and in all jobs based on that as much as, as whether you have the talent to, to fulfil the role. Um, and so I believe, I was told that it was between two of us. I have a sense it wasn't, but I know that there were conversations, I love this, where that were being had at certain quite high levels of the BBC as to whether they should go disability light instead of with me. Isn't that a delightful... What does that mean? That means, what does that mean? That means looking less crippled than I do. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you discovered you discovered that later. Yeah, because of course, when, you know, on. when you've been there, I was there for eight years. Uh, I was there, yeah, I was there until, until you know this year. Um, you learn a lot, and you meet people who 
you know, at the beginning, everybody's all very fragile and, and all very careful about what they say. But when you've been there a long, when you have longevity and when you've had a few battles, then the truth comes out. And so uh, I just... Uh, you know, it's. I think in in black terms, it would be like you know being kind of mixed race is okay, but being black, you know, is probably less acceptable. It's that is that if we're going to go disabled, are we going to go full disabled? Or are we going light? And that which is. Um, so when you go in for that second one, yeah, for that and and you've been a bit briefed by the casting director. Are you talking to them then about your character, how you would approach the character, or are you also talking to them about, listen, if you get me, if you get Liz, this is what it will be like, this is what I require, this is what I want, or, you know, this, you know, are you trying to make it all right for them to employ you as a as an actress above and beyond the fact that you're you can do the character? Yeah, I think I think I'd got the job on the first audition. And then I think they were like, this is who we want. And certainly, you know, Tim is a very persuasive man as a writer and the creator of the, the characters and very involved with silent winners. So, you know, he had a lot of sway and he wanted me and his son wanted me. And then I think there were other people batting for my side. So, you know, so now it's about proving that you can do the job. I mean, one sensible question, one thing that they wanted to know was... So in, in real life, Liz, I, there's certain things I can't do as a disabled person. I can't do certain physical tasks. So I have a helper. I have PAs, we call them, personal assistants. And they do the things I can't do. So one of their questions was, would my character, Clarissa, have a PA? You know, and actually, I think it's important that TV represents that relationship. Because again, I've never seen that. And it's different to being cared for and having a blanket thrown on your legs and and being treated like you're not, you're ill and, and whatever. So there are some really good examples of that, and that would be great to see on the screen. But it felt like it wasn't needed, and I sort of didn't want it um, because I thought I had enough to do, and I thought we had enough to to break through to an audience. You know, you you can't underestimate. I can't. I mean, now I've done it. Um, just how big a deal it is. It shouldn't be. But how big a deal it is when you present something that we're not used to seeing. You know, and I remember my first night that the show was broadcast. Um, and, you know, and one of the tweets, or a lot of the tweets were like, who the hell is this? She must be a baddie. They must have brought her in because she's evil. Because, you know, in Bond films, the disabled characters are usually the baddies. Um, that, that, that's what it equals. You know, why have they brought her in? What People were suspicious about my character, because I came in also with another character, Dave, uh, who played Jack, David Caves, the actor. Um, so we came as a two, really. He came, got the job at the Lyle Centre in Silent Witness, and this is very clever of the writer to do this. He, he connected us, and he did that, so it was harder for my character to be written out. So, Jack... That's a that's a great relationship though. That is that you know what happens between you and Jack in that is just so great. But did you do any sort of readings with David before you got the part? I mean, did they do any chemistry reads or anything like that? No, you know, honestly, I think because it was also when I think about it, I got the job mid March, and they start filming like two weeks later. Wow! So it was. 
It was up to the wire. You know, I, I don't think we know half of what went on. I would love to know what the conversations within the BBC and within production for Silent Witness were because, you know, to take two months because I was auditioned or I got that email in January. Um, so even if I can't quite remember now when the first audition was, but I think it was still in January and I, I get the role. It was something like the 16th or 17th of March. You know, and that was an amazing that was an amazing thing because remember they asked me if I was free between April and November. So me and Joe, my wife, are like, oh "My God, you've got a TV role because you you know theatre pays not theatre pays bobbins really, um, and, and you know you love it and it's still a nice wage, but TV, of course, your, your mind's going and you're like, oh, April till November, right? Okay, so many weeks." Blah, blah, blah. And then I get, I get the call on Monday and they're like, yeah, so we want you for, we, we filmed five blocks, five stories per series. We want you for four blocks. I, they didn't think, I don't think they thought I was staying. So they wanted me for four of the five uh, and we'll just need you for a maximum of a week each time. So actually I was contracted for four weeks. Um, wow. But but over how long? So four weeks over four five weeks months between, or something? Between, between April and November, yeah. Hardest part of the job because nobody paid a contingency or a, to hold you. So you just got paid for the week you worked and then that was it? That was it. And I didn't have an agent. Couldn't, nobody would take me on. So I, and it took six series till, it took six series and till I got anywhere near a decent rate of pay. And it took eight series until I got parity with... Wow, that is amazing, Liz. So, and I just say that not to kind of go... Well, I say that to go, it's a fight. I mean, it's... Yeah, it, it's every at every level. It, it shouldn't be. Um, and I really hope it's not for the next person because uh, it, it was a fight. Everything was a fight. Any Anything worth you know, that you really want. So absolutely in the end, I'm like, I'm not, you know, my character became incredibly popular, um, but was never remunerated in the same way as the other character who joined at the same time, for example. Uh, and was that? And, and that, and let's just say that other character with David, you, you, there's a, there's a lot of history, isn't there, with Clarissa? There's, you know, husband, mother, the David, the relationship with, uh, Jack and yeah. stuff. Was any of that discussed before you, you know, walked on set on that first day or got on set on that first day? I mean, how did that happen? No, none of that. None of that was. So it just so happened that me and David got on. We're both, and and I think it's funny because there are massive elements of us that are like our characters. And so kind of what you see, but also what happened is by, by the second year, or really after two years, we became them and our relationship was. So, you know, David is a huge, and in certainly along those eight years, he's been a huge part of my life and vice versa. We're incredibly close. So that kind of <clears throat> platonic friendship, and I think that's an interesting one because you know what? It's so rarely, they talk about it in When Harry Met Sally, don't they? Um, so rarely are a male and a female character are allowed to be platonic. Rightly or wrongly, I think some of that's because I'm a disabled woman. Because disabled women are often unsexed or not deemed as sexual. 
So I think we were allowed, very rarely did anyone go, I mean, everyone's going to go, uh, you know, Nikki Alexander, the Amelia Fox character and David, of course, they'll be together. Nobody ever really went, well, Clarissa and David will be a couple, won't they? You know, Clarissa and Jack. And, but that's, but it's also brilliant because I think those relationships do happen. And it was stronger for that. The other characters came about really because I fought like crazy for a story. I thought, you know, Matt Fraser, who I did the podcast for with, he said to me, he said, you're going to have to stick this out five years before you get anything, before you get a story. He said, you, you, you won't get a thing. Um, and he was absolutely right. And I didn't. I got. I, I would go out on location for maybe two scenes per series. Uh, and it became sort of embarrassing in the end. So initially, you just, initially, my first year, I was just happy with whatever. But then I was brought back and I, I got my fifth week, you know, and then I was brought back for the second series. But the stuff that I was being given was easily ed- editable. So it was really very, I was, it was either a snarky comment or a bit of exposition. And that would just... And it was all, it was all office bound, wasn't it? It was, it was all, all office very bound. one location. Yeah. So it was so one dimensional that by sort of series four and five, I was really getting bored. I was really bored. Um, and I'd learned, you know, I was learning because I'd never done TV. I'd never done um, a camera acting. I had never... Yeah, just the experience. Well, to be on set, you know, the language, the words that people use, the etiquette, the relationships, the what you do with your time, the fact that you might be called in at six in the morning and not be on screen until six in the evening if used at all that day and you don't moan. Because, well, you can, but you can't when you're at my level and you couldn't and or I didn't. And I didn't have a I didn't have an accessible trailer until two years ago, I had the back room that was a storeroom that they painted and put a couple of Ikea things in, you know, and so that was next to the men's loo. It it was, it, it often took other people to go, really? It took one producer to go, why have you not got your own trailer? Because until you have a trailer, they're not going to take you on location. We're not going to, why would we do that? And that was true. It was chicken and egg because once I got an accessible trailer... But the characters came about, the husband came about because I had moaned that I didn't have a decent story. By now we're at series 20 and I joined in 16, so 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. So five years now. We'll be back with more chat after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, you're listening to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Now, back to this week's episode. I don't want to sign another contract. I now have a decent agent. And she's like, oh, sign, sign, sign. You know, agents want you to be in work. And she doesn't know what the hell she's going to get me if I don't do this. So she wants me to sign. And I say, well, I'll sign if you give me a story. So Tim Prager comes back and he writes a story. But unique to most Silent Witness episodes, it's not one that intertwines. So usually the stories intertwine. This wasn't. Is this one day? This wasn't one day, no. This is the year Uh. before that, yeah. Um, And this was about Clarissa had... (laughs) Clarissa used medical marijuana, apparently. This was the storyline. And Jack didn't know. And Jack wasn't happy, which is ridiculous, because he'd know firstly, and he'd be so cool with her having it, right? And it was a brilliant story. That bit wasn't that brilliant, but... But the actual story that it was weaving through was really brilliant. Anyway, we film it. It's a bit rubbish, but, you know, small mercies, and it's better than a bit of DNA on the arm again. So the <laughs> next episode, and it's maybe my third day in. So I always did the last week, when, which, is, uh, which was um, lab-based, so on set. And, yeah, I think it's the second day. And the producer at lunchtime says, oh, Liz, can I just have a word? She says, we've, we've had to pull that story of yours. Uh, we've cut it. Uh, we, we ran out of space. And... My God. And that was it. That was it. And I said, I, for, the, for the good of the other actors, I will stay for the rest of this episode for the next three days. But uh, I didn't say that immediately. I sat and I thought, and David was... He was like, David was so angry too because he's like, he felt that they knew and they did. They did know they were never gonna, they were never gonna do it. So it would have been the carrot to get me to sign to get me back. But everyone knew it was cut, being cut. But they'd actually, the indignity of having to film it and, and feeling quite humiliated. And I just said, you know what? I think you gain a lot from me being there. I think BBC gains a lot from me being on TV. Um, and and I don't think you respect me actually, and you've really missed a chance. And I'm I would and do you know what? What was great is I was about to go and create uh, my musical, Assisted Suicide, the musical, and devise that with this amazing bunch of actors. So I was about to do that thing that we talked about earlier that we love, that going and making art and being creative. And so I that's what I did. So I finished that week said to my agent was completely behind me um and I went and made you know a musical until like a month later and I'm due in for the next episode and we've told them and they but they don't think I'm serious you know they're they are presuming I'm going back and we're like so I get um, I get you know I get the head of drama BBC I get the exec and I get the producer in a meeting at, uh, yes, anyway, where we were. And I'm like, you know, no, I'm, I wasn't in touch because I'm not, 
uh, not coming back. They admitted that they did know that they were not going to use it. They took responsibility. They said that I couldn't leave the series because what would the audience do? And I said, they'll survive and we'll have to be honest about what's happened. And they said, what would it take for you to come back? And I said, well, it would take a storyline. And um, so they gave me a storyline, which became, and they said, well, you've all, you're always banging on about Clarissa having a partner because, you know, Clarissa, would, when I auditioned, Clarissa was a married woman, it said that. And I'd made sure my character always wore a wedding ring and, and had that in my own sort of backstory and my own sense of who she was. Um, but all the other characters had on screen had relationships but my character hadn't. Nobody had ever, ever, ever touched on Clarissa. Do you feel like they, they didn't give you that because they didn't know how to get involved in it? Was there an embarrassment around them or was it just a lack of knowledge or a sort of ignorance or what? People don't... I mean, you know, when they said you have to be really good at making people feel OK, and nobody wants to admit they don't know stuff. We're not, we're not very good. <laughs> yeah, just look at the moment, you know. Um, you, 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 people are incredibly uh, proud and won't admit either that they've messed up or that they, they're ignorant and they don't know something. So rather than go, Liz, help us here, over the five years they never did. But it was this glaring omission and I, and I had alluded to that in the email where I'd resigned and um, in this meeting, when they said, what would you like? And they knew where they were going because they they'd already been thinking. And, and they said, well, how about that relationship? We have, a, you know, an episode that has that as part of it. And, and I remember that the, the exec producer at the time, she said, yes, we're thinking that Clarissa could have like a boyfriend. How great would that be? And she was all, she was so like, it won't that be amazing? And I was like, no way, no way. No, because I said, everything that you have in terms of disability on TV, like the undateables and all stuff like that, is that we're not capable of love, that we have difficulty finding relationships. And what I grew up never seeing and never believing for myself, therefore, as smart as I am, that you can have a decent relationship and be a disabled person. And that can be with another disabled person or a non-disabled person. It can be gay or it can be straight. I mean... I, it's not there. Where it is, is, oh gosh, will anybody love me because I'm crippled? We have that on telly. So I was really clear that the relationship Clarissa was going to be in was actually the strongest of the four characters. Because that amused me, is that, you know, Jack just couldn't make it work with women. Nikki had an on-off with different people and Thomas was being divorced. What if the one person who we normally think is the one not likely to have a relationship, and in fact we've avoided it for five years, if she's the one with the husband and the fairly normal relationship? Now, of course, they weren't that interested because that's not where the drama is. But it's like there is drama in, in seeing things we don't see normally. Absolutely. And you said, you just, just to go back a second, you said you were very clear about what you were saying, but you must have been angry as well, Liz. There must have been a sense of like, here you are five years down the line and you're, that's the first time they're asking you what, you know, what you want to explore, you know, what you want to bring out in the character. There must have been anger. How do you deal with that anger inside you as well? Uh, therapy. <laughs> I mean, (laughs) (laughs) using my wage increase to pay for therapy, uh, I have a lot of anxiety because I think I'm very good at being fine. 
you know, I can be angry. I've been on the streets, as I say, and I will protest. So, you know, there's a time and there's a place. So there's no point, uh, you know, I was very clear with my actions. I was leaving and I was very clear that they weren't getting me back. And then, you know, and then I said, well, you come up with something that looks decent and I'll come back. So on that basis, I went and did the third episode. Now, we were going to be filming the other one in four. So I was either going to leave in four if it was no good or come back and do it. And this is worth a story worth telling, really. So they get this writer, bless him. And he, because he now has to write Clarissa into a relationship. But he's done the episode pretty much, okay? So this poor writer is being cajoled by you know, by the producers, that he has to write a character. And he sends me, oh my God, they send me this like pen portrait of the character and the, the script. It's, I mean, I can, I can still barely talk about it. It, it's so bad. It was so bad. I mean, well, he was called Ray. I mean, I'm sorry people call Ray, but, and, and he was like mid- he was described as mid-50s, uh, amiable, and and he was overweight. Now, all of that, let's look at who we think that person is. Now, I've got no problem with whether people, what age they are, how they appear, but this is a show that's aspirational. So until you give the other main characters partners who are realistic and have a bit of weight around their tummies and a few straggly hairs and a bit of facial hair and the realities of middle age, until you do that with the rest of them, don't give me Ray, who's fat and amiable, um, who's huffing and puffing on the floor. They have a relationship where they don't have sex. This is all written in. I mean, and none of the, all that, that all of that is written in before anyone's had a conversation with you about, about it. So you're delivered this episode from a request that you've made and nobody has talked to you in the interim. So they're desperate, right? So they're, they're race in a race against time. Um, and they've got the existing writer who's written this episode coming up. They know that it's going to be a relationship. They know that I want her to have a, a, a grounded relationship and they come up with this, Ray. And I'm like, if you deliver me that in trying to get me to stay, then you have so much to learn, really. And what they got me is they got me one of those awful conference calls with the writer. But, you know, but the producers were on the line at the same time as well, which was poor, you know, God. Um, But the writer got it. I mean, absolute kudos to him. He listened to what I had to say. I talked about my own relationship and relationship experiences. I told him why we didn't want a a pie-munching kind of, you know, stereotype. He admitted he'd gone for kind of of Terry and June 70s sitcom. I think because my character was comical as well. They'd gone for comedy. Now, the next thing then... So he turned it around. The next thing they went too far the other way and give me kind of James Bond. And then we pair him down. But, you know, I've got all of the scenes where he's going to appear. And I remember I had 16 pages of notes for about five scenes. 
um, because I'm meticulous and I know my stuff and, you know, really. And, um, and I met with the script editor and head of drama again and we went through them and there was some great stuff and, and he pulled that together, uh, the writer. And, what's, and, and, and that's when Max was born. Now, Max was Clarissa's husband and this is fascinating. Um, well, it's fascinating to me. I hope it is to listeners as well. Um, I'm brought in for the audition, for the chemistry test. So they have right, done okay. they've done self-tapes to certain actors, and now we're down to five actors, uh, all men, different sort of, kind of different ages, because they've gone for that kind of, we didn't go James Bond, but we went attractive, uh, Again, aspirational, but maybe a bit like a, a sort of lecturer, professory lecturer type, right? Um, Academic. Yeah, kind of. He was in the same business. He was into forensic, uh, forensic like tech stuff. So, th- so there was a crossover, and that helped with the story. That was it. He was being brought in basically to help with the case. She was bringing her husband in. And that's how we got away with him coming in. And um, so five guys, two of them didn't touch me. There was a kiss in the scene. And it wasn't just that. It was even when they came in as actors, they didn't do anything. They were brittle, you could see. Because the director was there and the casting guy and they were like, it was the best thing for them to witness. Because I had no, I was, I had no doubt. I knew that we needed to do this, and it was really only one person, and that was Dan Wayman, Daniel Wayman, who got the role, who absolutely came in, you know, just back from holiday with the children, and, and you must be Liz. Great. Um, do you mind if I kiss? Let's do the. Let's do the. All energy, uh, and then the kiss that was written in the script. He says, right, well, and he'd been in Foil's War. And he said that uh, Honeysuckle, who he'd, he'd, he'd played her husband, uh, that she had said that she was fed up of being kissed in the audition. And I'm like, well, how lucky for her. I'm getting no kissing. He said, well, I just wanted to check whether you wanted that or not. Great, let's play that. He checked it out. He was great fun. Um, there was no weirdness. Because he's smart, right? And he knew that if this is a chemistry test... As an actor, you have to have chemistry. You have to work then to have chemistry with the actor you're with, the actress you're with. Um, There was, I mean, the last guy that auditioned, (coughs) I mean, his body language, he might as well have been in another room. It was, it was a disgrace. It was. And did you, did you really see the producers and the writers learning something from that experience? Well... We brought the character back. It was really popular. Uh, the next year, I get a really decent storyline, which was one day the care home abuse storyline. Uh, on leaving this year, I got an amazing storyline in Hope, where um, my the character's mum dies. And and I think all of that is down to many things, but but teaching them that I can act teaching them that I could do more than exposition and the, the, the science bits, teaching them that I could do a bit of emotion. 
um, teaching them there was an audience for this stuff and that audiences accept that. There's a bit in the, the episode with, with, with Dan, with Max, her husband, where we go to his offices. Because, I mean, I, I was really, you know, I was power crazed by now. Because I'd had nothing, so I, so you know, I give them sixteen pages of notes. I get involved in the auditions for the guy. Um, I I get involved in the editing. They get me into the editing, and there's a scene where we go into his business, his company, because uh, he's really rich and all of that. Um, and there's a, a what do you call it? a revolving door, and basically I barge into the revolving door, and that's how I enter the building. Because if it's big enough, I would do that as me. And I know that if you've just got a scene that's me and Jack walking into a building, I'm going to, why not? Who, who's seen that before? Who's seen the revolving door? She, it's her husband's firm. She knows she's comfortable. It, it says so much. Well, I get into the edit and that's gone. The edit begins with them in the building or them coming. And, and I'm like, you've, you've missed the revolving door. You, you have no idea what that means, Okay. And this is the thing, this is the issue that unless you have continuity, like one person carrying your vision through, or unless you have people that see what you see and know what your world is about, they're going to miss these moments that on Twitter, she's a great friend of mine, but Jess Tom Tourette's hero said when she saw that scene, at last I've seen a, a, a realistic portrayal. That's how I would enter so the revolving door scene goes back into because you're in the edit, you see it's gone. It goes back into the show. Yeah, yeah. Because every time that I hit something, and, and I was really angry, you know, I would be angry, and I'd say, "What I, you asked what I do for anger?" And I said, "Therapy," and that's true. Um, but I also type. I type, you know, and I type angry emails that some producers have had some stonking emails from me and that was like you know you've just done this again you're just paying lip service because you're editing all the good stuff out and they would put it but they put it back you know so because again this is now five years so that's it the more powerful the more they need you in a show um and it's funny isn't it a friend of mine disabled actor friend of mine says in a way the thing that you struggle with the most. So I wasn't getting roles because I was a disabled actor, you could argue. But then that makes you, if you're any good or they like the role, it actually gave me probably more power than most of the other characters. Uh, um, you know, really, uh, because, and I think that's why you were saying, you know, I have this amazing relationship with Jack, Clarissa did. She had a husband in Max. Uh, she had a mum that we saw in a couple of episodes. All because I think I fought. I fought much harder than the rest of the actors. They, everyone fought for decent storylines for their character, but I was absolutely like a dog with a bone, going, where is my episode? Where is the storyline that gets Clarissa out? We, you know, it's a waste of my character if you just have her in there telling people, you know, how the crime was solved. But what would, what would the Liz at the end of that experience tell the Liz at the beginning of that experience? What, if you could go back and give yourself your advice at the beginning of going into that show, 
what would that advice be? Apologise less and know your worth more. Accept less. Accept more. Don't don't put up with shit, really. Um, and know... And would you get involved in your storyline quicker? Would you have made those demands earlier in the experience i think to know that actually once you know you don't know for that first year and they could have got rid of me but once you're embedded as a character that really it would be very hard i mean you know could the bbc really have ever sacked me could they imagine sacking your one disabled character your one solid disabled character in a returning drama i mean i'd have had to do something pretty astonishing but also disabled or not i mean what's happening with you from a fan point of view is massive isn't it yeah. Yeah, because she's a, you know, she's a fantastic character. She, you know, she was kick-ass. She had great shoes. Um, she had great lines and she solved the cases and people wanted to be her or wanted to be her friend. I mean, that's, you know, the, the love and the sorrow when I left the series was like, I mean, breathtaking. And, and to know how important you've been to people. And it isn't something that I took lightly. It made, it, made the decision to leave very, very hard. Um, but in truth, it had been so hard that I kind of couldn't do it anymore. I kind of needed more variety. And, uh, and, and I think I had achieved so much that, that people will know, I mean, people will know far more because of this interview, but actually you, people don't know all of that that went on or the shit that you put up with or, you know, and, and, what, and, and what those fights were. So I think in the end, so, so the decision to leave came the year before, came in series 22, uh, but I was trying, they were trying to woo me way, way into series 23, even into the filming of it. Uh, for me to stay, but it, and, and of course they're giving me, the last series, they give me everything I want. There's a new producer who gives me absolutely everything pretty much I want. It was a dream of a series, but you know, in a way, what a great end then, because then I'd have just, the next series, which they haven't been able to film anyway yet at this point, um, would just have been fighting to keep at that level and to keep the quality and to keep the experience. And of course, you know, we're greedy. We always want, or a lot of us are, we want more. You do one thing and then... But we want to... It's not greed, though, is it, really? It's about wanting to expand. It's about wanting to be as creative as we can. It's about, you know, one of the things I've found really difficult in in COVID in this time is, you know, at first I loved it. It was great, you know. But I feel that my my brain is closing down slightly because I want to be with my, like we said at the beginning, I want to be with my people. I want to be with the creative people. I want to, you know, exercise scripts and sort of get up and throw ideas around. I want to be in that environment. That makes sense. I mean, I think maybe greed, the wrong word, it's hunger. It's of the same beast, really. It's, it's wanting it's hunger, more. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's greedy for experiences. You know, I want to play, mm. I want to play more characters. I want to play different characters. I, I want to, do you know what? I want to open a script and be surprised by it, not to have had to have written it or been involved in it, you know, and, and hope that the episode that, that really was, was where um, Clarissa's mum dies, that, I mean, I, I did have a little involvement in that, but Lena Ray, who wrote it, you know, it pretty much came as tapped and it, to open that, 
that that was it. I knew I'd won in a way because I'd waited eight years for a script that I could open. Well, and a script that you can a script that you can act and be an actress in. Yeah, it? that's it's that true. Thing of being an actor in it, you know, that they're giving you something where you can act, that you can react and have emotion. It's those things that you need, isn't it? And you know, and you do have to. Like friends are always telling me, yeah, but realize and remember what Silent Witness is. You're not going to get every experience from one job. So, you know, often, you know, the characters often don't get a storyline and they often don't get to play emotions other than a bit of sadness at one of the deaths and the stories. But to get, you know, following your mum dying um, through, well, dementia and cancer was like, you know, the emotions to play that and the decision she was making and that having at the same time being very involved in a case and, and playing the, the role of... of as if nothing was going on and just carrying on, which is life. I mean, it was it was a, a joy, but also one of the hardest things I've ever done because it was, yeah, it was, it was hard. And my dad had died in real life that year, last year. So we were only about, what were we on, about eight months, nine months from from me losing my parent in a very similar way, really. So it was, it was incredible catharsis um, and it was also really tough, but I, I kind of... Yeah, I, I've, I've been interviewed about it and I said it, in some ways it was very easy as well because I sort of knew what to do because I'd done it eight months earlier, you know, and, and so it was a bit of a, a kind of an honour to get to play that and to immortalise it in some ways. Yeah, and I think that thing of just somebody, you know, I often look at scripts and I think when have I been there? And of course I haven't been to all the situations I've acted in but I've looked at things and I think I can I can take this thing from my own life and I can either make it smaller or bigger to bring into this emotion here whether I'm playing you know a Roman general or a man who's very much like myself you know you can there's things that we go through personally that we and that's our job isn't it that we do that and I think and for me there was also the physicality around being in a hospital Funnily enough, well, you know, one of the things it was it was the learning. How do I operate? I'm a wheelchair user, but I do stand up and I do reach things if I can't reach them. So being around a dying parent's bed was something I had some experience in. So there's there's a it's a beautiful scene where a lot of real tears were shed when I'm kind of letting go of my mum and and I stand. We didn't know how we were going to play it, but the chairs and my wheelchair and me are at the side, and then I stand up and I go and I can reach her her head and her hair and I stroke her hair and 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 kind of let my mum go and that was from that's what I could do with my dad I couldn't reach certain bits and hold his hand often but I could be close up if the bed was up and we, so it, it actually gave me the physicality of it as well of, of being familiar um and that was incredibly useful and, and like I say it it's it, it feels really special because it does feel like you've immortalized it a, immortality you know it's an immortality really um and is and is are you able with because you know you get different directors for different episodes don't you on 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 silent witness are are you able in those scenes to be able to sort of talk to a director about the things that you need and you want i mean obviously he's he or she is looking after the camera stuff but are you able to dictate what is happening in those scenes yeah very much i mean and that's 
that also, and you asked what my advice would be back to myself, it would be about trusting myself and not being afraid. So I remember at one point, the very first director we ever had for my first episode was struggling, bless him, was struggling with the height difference between me and the other characters. So, just from a shop, just just from a shot point of view. Absolutely, because obviously, if I'm at waist height, and they they were both in their six foot kind of three or four, uh, David Caves and and um, Richard Linton, who played Thomas. So, so what he'd do, the director would raise me up on a plinth. But if you raise me on a plinth, I'm immobilized. I don't have freedom of movement. So now, as an actor and as somebody that panics as well. Um, I'm on my plinth thinking I'm going to fall off my fucking plinth rather than thinking, what am I doing? And, and, you know, anything to do with being an actor. I'm worrying about that. So, you know, and and it's only then that we did that for for one block, one story. And then thought, no, I'm not. I can't do that again. So you, you learn and then you learn what you can tell other directors. And then and then also you're given freedom by directors, too. So you learn some just you know, give you the freedom of the movement. You you just block the scene. You do with it what you want and that's it. And so by, you know, that's it. By eight years, I completely would was very confident with any director to go, oh, I imagine playing it like that and I think that's unusual or blah, blah, blah. But if you need me over there, we could do it that way. And sometimes there are demands because I can't turn my neck a certain way or could you look, can you look up, from look down and then look up. No, I can't because you're not going to see any difference because I've not got that mobility. Um, or can you hold that? Well, not away from me because my arms don't reach. So, but but you're not saying it in a, oh, I'm really sorry, my arms don't work. You're just going, it's as a matter of fact of, no, no, that, that we can't do that. As if they were asking you to do the splits and to run a four-minute mile. You know, whatever our limitations it's the are. practicality, yeah. It, it, is, it is, absolutely. And it's just being very matter-of-fact. And even, so learning to voice that and be that confident and to, like I say, not apologise for what you need. And when you look back at it now, I mean, it was a long time, a big chunk of your life that, and you've, you know, you've expressed very clearly about the journey that you went on, uh, both, you know, as, a, as an actress, but as a person going into television. I mean, what, what do you look back on? What do you take from the experience? Uh, obviously, there are happy memories, but what do you take about uh, the one thing about being in Silent Witness? I, d- I just think... It blows my mind. It blows my mind that a series that I kind of vaguely watched in the 90s um, when Amanda Burton was on it, I mean, I would never have gone, do you know what? And if anyone, anyone had gone, you're going to be in that, you're going to be in that, and you're going to be one of the, it's three characters, there's going to be four, by the way, they said it couldn't be a four-person show, but you'll make it a four-person show, and people will be gutted when you leave. And, I mean, there's no way, no way from where I've come from that I could have even got a handle on that, that that was going to become real. So it, it's, it's quite shallow, the things, but it's like, oh, my God, I got to be in a big BBC drama and go out in people's living rooms or wherever they're watching every week. And 
and also make a difference in terms of TV and portrayal of disabled characters and and improve that, I think, massively. And selfishly, but why not? Um, without the experience that I got and without the longevity of the role, I wouldn't have got some of the other things that have come to me. So um, I'm going to be in a film that was going to come out next month, in, in that was going to come out this year, it's now coming out next year, big Paramount Hollywood film. Um, and, you know, they didn't know me at all, who I was. But, you know, I've got the casting woman going to the director. She's done eight years in Silent Witness, which is a BBC, a main BBC One show. That, you can't, in their view, you can't be crap if if you're in a show like that. Um and so it has given me and will continue to give me um, work and pride and the skills and the friendships, I think, and the stories, the anecdotes to go, oh, this is how bad it was. But also you get, th- you know, you get through it, don't you? you it, it was really tough. Um, but I'm glad I listened to Matt Fraser, who said, stick it out. Um, and I'm glad that I had other friends telling me to fight for it and appreciate that I had stuff that they needed, so not to take less. And I'm glad you fought, you know, you're right back at you. I'm glad those fights, they're really important. It's not, you know, for everybody. I think that thing of, you know, fighting for your character, fighting for you know what your character is. And in those long television series, it's about why go to work if you're not fighting for your character? Why turn up if you're not fighting for your character? You know, you've got to be true to them and and love them to the point where you want them, even if they're doing storylines where they do terrible things. You want to show them in all their complexity. And, you know, that fight that you had is really important for every actor to sort of make sure that they can have that and have a voice. Yeah, no, definitely. It, it, it's, uh, it is the thing that I'm... Yeah, chuffed I got the opportunity really to do it, and uh, and and we were all on speaking terms by the end. I mean, it was that's the thing too is you go through that, but it was a really good ending. I mean, it, it was. Um, they didn't want me to go, but they wished me well and gave me an amazing send off, and in every sense because I had this great series. Uh, the other characters, the other actors, sort of understood. You know, my agent still probably doesn't understand why I would give in eight years in a major job after we'd fought for a pay rise. Uh, But there you go. Uh, But that's also, you know, it's about what's important to you. And I felt I'd done what I needed to do uh, for me. And and so now the, you know, the, the job became looking for other experiences, playing other roles, using the skills that I gained and and the power, if that's all the, you know, um, because it, it will, it does and it has opened doors and that's amazing. Liz, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today. It's so fantastic to speak to you and, and hear, hear everything about Silent Witness and how, how it was for you. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening because I talk very fast. <laughs> Who Am I This Time is a Just Voices and Doolally production. Produced by Simon Lennigan, music by Greg Hatwell. Edited and mixed by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg and presented by me, David Morrissey. Hold up. 
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com (laughs) 